Anyway, welcome to Survive It Well, the podcast where two students are getting close to their deadline. And yes, and are not happy about it. Not happy about it. So, you know, let's just get right into it. Yeah, but you've not said who you are. I'm oh! Aparna, and you're? I'm Haley. Okay. And today, for our... It's been a while since we recorded. It has it's been, been a, a long, long time, so we don't know our names anymore. <laughs> it's been a long time since I told someone my name. It actually has. Has it really? When was the last time you told someone your name? Hmm. Yeah, not, not for a while. Everyone yeah. who knows, who has to ever know me already knows me. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I want to know what your best, worst, or most notable email was. Okay. I have a very boring life, and although I get a lot of emails, they're all newsletters. So <laughs> <laughs> my best, most, most notable email. So it's both my best email and my worst email. Okay. It's the same answer. I, like I subscribed to, uh, I have a fountain pen by a company called Lamy, and I was looking oh, up yeah. on their website how to take care of it, because my, my pen has been having trouble starting. Ah. So... I was looking at pen maintenance things and I signed up to their newsletter because I was like, maybe they'll give me tips and tricks on how to take care of my pen and <laughs> keep me updated on all the fountain pen news that's going on in the world. I don't there's know. So many there's new, so, much. so much news about fountain pens. Yeah. I had, you know what, I had pictured such a perfect let, uh, newsletter in my head that I feel like now it should exist. It should exist. You should start Because it. there was going to be a regular feature of famous fountain pen users and what pen oh, they, like what it's pen always is, nice to yeah. know what famous writers used to use to write that's with. true yeah so I'm anyway sold. then i got the newsletter and basically it's like an advertisement it's just beautiful beautiful pens mm, so i just felt very very expensive yeah. and so i just felt i'm not ever going to buy this unless my other fountain pen i don't like to even say this out loud but unless something happens to it, I would never buy another Lamy fountain pen. Oh. Nobody can afford two Lamy fountain pens. <laughs> so then I had to unsubscribe from it. So it was both my best and my worst mm. email. Yeah. What was your best, worst, most notable email? Okay, so as you know, I've told you, we received some ridiculous emails from our landlord. Oh, yeah. I don't know who we is, me and all the people who live in this building, not you. Right. And I received an email today. Okay, the emails I've received in the past just, well, I'll give you, I'll tell you previously one of the subject headings was raw meat in the hallway. <laughs> that says more about the, the people, people who you share a hallway with than it's true. the landlord. This one also tells you more about the people who live in this building. Right. Okay, the subject is important information. Oh, I can't wait. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, landlord. <laughs> this email is to remind you all not to take or eat anyone else's food slash drink in the building, as this will now be considered theft. Thank you. Whoa! <laughs> oh my goodness! Who ate somebody else's food? Yeah. Is there like a common refrigerator? There's a common refrigerator downstairs, but they didn't specify that refrigerator. Like there are, they come in like once a week. They typically have like when the, when we're not like in peak pandemic 
they have like a waffle day or something. Right. So I don't think residents can keep food in that fridge. Oh, it's okay. like the building so chef. Then, so or then that's not it. That's not it. So, so I don't know. There are like communal living rooms, like the, like oh um, yeah 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 rooms that have like five rooms and a shared kitchen. Mm. But they didn't even specify. They sent it to the whole building, and it just says, "Do not take or eat anyone else's food," as this will be considered theft. I mean. I'm just thinking about the poor person who complained because <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. This has happened to someone. Now. Yeah, I was like, man, crazy things have happened to me because of the people that live on <laughs> yes. my floor. But I've never complained. But you should. I should have, I guess. Yeah, you should have. Yeah, but these people but were this... like, this. Somebody stole my oat milk, and I'm not <laughs> having it. <laughs> I wouldn't have had it. Either. I mean, for so oatmeal, I would have had it. So how do they charge you? This is going to be considered as theft. Do they, do you, does that mean they're going to charge someone? If, yeah, they're going to get them arrested. <laughs> Isn't it technically theft if you take someone else's property? I guess. Yeah. I guess so. I yeah. think there should be stricter punishment for food eating. I guess, yeah, yeah. Food stealing. Food eating. Yeah, it's just punishment <laughs> for eating food. Anyway. Yeah. Nice. Okay, let's talk about our recommendations from the last time. Okay. Uh... I don't... Can I go first this time? Yes. I'm so antsy. You recommended that we go to the library and you pick a book. Yes. For me. And we went to the library. Yes. And you picked a book called The Arrival by Sean Tan. Yes. Who's this, one of my favorite picture bookmakers. I can see why. Yeah. This is... On the back, it's considered... Or it's described as a silent graphic novel. Yes. Which I think is very sweet. Yeah. It's a, yeah, a graphic novel that doesn't have any words. No. no words. Not even like an oof. Yeah. Um, this is exquisite. Yes. I don't think this, is, to be clear, it was in the children's book section. Yes. I don't think that I have gleaned everything there is to glean from this book. Yeah. It is, so it's the story of like a, a father who... Uh, goes to a new country yes. to escape the dragon shadows <laughs> in their town, leaving behind his wife and child. Yeah. And sort of the story of the other refugees that he meets along the way hmm. and him figuring out how to be in this sort of magicalized, magicalized. Yeah. Semi-fantasy-ish. Yeah. Yes. New country. And the way that this is done is so clever. The people hmm. are still like they look like people. Hmm. The city he moves to doesn't look like a city that yeah. anyone would see. So while while someone is reading it, the place he goes to feels unfamiliar to anyone yeah. reading the book. And the people are still people and they look like people. Hmm. But every person or most people seem to have this accompanying creature. Yeah. A creature that is with them and, and this main character also gets a creature. Yeah. Which I think is so clever because it makes it... It's sort of... It's like the people you meet are still people. Yes. When you move to... when Or when you flee or, you know, whatever, by necessity have to move to a new country... The people can still be what people have the ability to be, which is welcoming and yes. understanding and helpful and loving. But there's this like 
strangeness because of this thing that comes with them, mm -hmm. which is this creature. And you see him, like, just trying to figure out maps and the way that they, the food that they have looks different and the machines and their mode of transportation, everything is different. It's divided into, I think, five parts. And you see, like, him becoming more familiar. Yeah. And you see that someone that he meets has, like, this accompanying animal who has the... the, the this animal has the tail of the dragon oh. that has been, like, uh, haunting or right. whatever, the, the place that he has fled from. And he says to him like he you know he's freaking out and says mm. this is the scary mm. threat and and the other guy is like no 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 and mm. then he shows him what his threat was and it's something different right it's just beautiful it's beautiful and even though i don't know remember properly but does he meet any like does he have any negative interactions with anyone um it there are people, especially at the border, hmm. who aren't being patient with him. Sure. But overall, not yeah. very many but people. But despite that, hmm. you feel like his loneliness and his discomfort in being in a new environment yeah. so strongly. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, you see him becoming more comfortable as the book progresses. But yeah. just that you're immediately put into the mind of someone who would be yeah be facing that the fact that like so he gets off sort of this boat and the way that he's transported is also confusing hmm. and the the town that he arrives in me looking at it i'm like oh i feel silly because i don't understand what this place hmm. is as the adult reading yeah. the book yeah i don't understand but that's the point. Yeah. Like the reading experience gives you, obviously not the exact feeling, mm. but it points towards what that feels exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. So this book, because it's wordless, mm -hmm. I, I was writing about this today uh, for my dissertation, is um, it was used in one study to, to sort of make connections with uh, immigrant children who had come to the U.S., mm. um, to sort of because they weren't able to communicate comfortably in English and they had nobody to talk to but this book sort of gave them a way into discussing things that they were going through or feelings that they were going through because they didn't have to know the language to understand the book because it doesn't have any words mm. so yeah the book yeah. was used in that that way which I mm. think is really cool it really is it's an it's an exceptional book yeah yeah and again, like I said, finishing it even, I'm like, I, I could read it again and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. get, and I spent like an hour and a half with it today Aww. being like really trying to, mm. and it's because did sometimes you, I you find. I do feel like very emotional in the end because I won't spoil yeah. the ending, but I was so emotional. Yeah. I think one of my readings, I might have even cried at Aww. the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I felt very emotional. I also found myself feeling like I'm the adult, like mm. I, I'm an adult. I'm so not used to interpreting mm. things through through images, yeah. which is a skill yeah. and, and an, in an art form that I was like, oh, yeah. picture books are amazing. They are, yeah. Um, that also reminds me in Come From Away, hmm. 
the musical, there's a scene where, uh, you know, people from all over the world have landed, have been grounded in this tiny town in Canada, and they're being taken off their planes and, like, shipped in, not shipped, um, transported in buses, and all these mm. people who don't speak the same language are feeling scared. They don't know what's going on. And the way that they, like, tell them that it's going to be okay is by pointing to a passage in the Bible, like a specific yeah. line that, I mean, not every religion uses so. the, the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, so it, it doesn't work for everyone, mm-hmm. but for many of them, there's like a certain passage, I can't remember what, 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 which one it is, but basically it translates to be anxious for nothing. Oh, okay. So it, it's like, it's a way to yeah. say, like, if you point at that, that's what they're trying to say, which is, I just oh, think that's, that's nice. nice. Yeah. Okay, so I recommended to you a chapter from a book. Yes, who's it by? It's by Lucia Perillo. Okay. I think is how you say her name. And the chapter is called Bird Song. Yes. And I don't know anything about this person. I've just read this chapter. Okay. So she seems to have some illness which curtails her mobility. Yeah. And um, it's, well, her, her journey as a bird watcher, bird listener. Yeah. I have written down notes. Oh, great. Thing, so I'm going do you to, want me uh, to tell you what condition she has or do you like it better not knowing? No, you can tell. So at the beginning of the book, I maybe should have told you that she has multiple sclerosis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. From quite a young age. So I found it extremely, extremely interesting mm. because there were several bits that I liked. But um, so at one point she's talking about how this person who has synesthesia, how they listen to bird songs, but they're able to see the how they are represented. Mm-hmm. And uh, it like it comes as colors or, or something. And she was like, that that's... And he just travels around looking for bird sounds. Yeah. And she's like, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be. But the way that she interprets bird sounds is also as unique mm-hmm. because she has come up with this visual way of representing it yeah which makes sense to her yeah and wouldn't make sense to anyone else yeah but she's come up with this unique language of these little spikes and these little figures to represent how the speech looks and i just thought that was very interesting that she's doing something similar yeah but uh has not realized it because we don't realize it about ourselves. <laughs> Did you find yourself at any point like there's one on on the page that you were just holding that's like it looks like three sort of coils yeah, yeah. and then a bunch of up and down like heart yeah. monitor symbols or something and then yeah. a few dashes. And I out loud tried to be like And I was like that doesn't sound like a bird. How does yeah. she come back yeah. to it and remember anything? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she just seems like I identified a lot with her based on the things that she was saying. Mm-hmm. How uh, she said at one point, she said, We've entered a, the post beauty era now since we know how beauty can divert our attention to the left when on the right some atrocity is happening. Which is true if you spend enough time online, you start feeling guilty about enjoying things because there are like so many horrible things are happening and mm-hmm. I don't deserve to enjoy anything. I, that's become just the way things are and that's like you like feeling guilty about enjoying something is 
I I feel like I identify with it a lot because of the sort of things we consume. Mm. I guess. Yeah. 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 And at another point, she says, "I'm not sure this bird taming would be." She's like, "I have so much time on my hand that I can train a bird to eat out of my hand or something." Mm-hmm. And then she says, I'm not sure this bird taming would be conscionable from an environmental point of view. And then I was thinking of Edges for Hawk, <laughs> a book that we have a problem with. And how, uh, yeah, it's, I agree uh, with her. It is, yeah. it is unconscionable from an environmental point of view, according to me. Right. I don't want to get into that. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that was an interesting thing that that was something she dismissed right away. And uh, so basically, I really liked how it allows for anyone to find a way into being interested in something. Mm. Because she can't see all of the birds because they're down. But based on just the sound, she's developed this whole relationship with bird watching. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been able to keep her out. Mm -hmm. And she's found her own unique way of how we can protect it will better equip us to protect it from climate change and also the the various ways like respect for other people as well as for nature can come through telling these stories yeah yeah so that was really interesting to me how she found a way into something that if you put like her condition together with the activity of bird watching you might think that they don't go together but yeah the whole chapter is about how she found a way into it yeah yeah at one point she said that she was oh she was frustrated because she was very dependent on technology and therefore one step removed from nature Mm. and i have written down technology is not the antithesis to nature Mm. it's not technology has enabled so many people to get access in so many ways to things that they wouldn't otherwise have access to like i have seen this is just a terrible example but i know what the sound of a bird that i would never meet Mm -hmm. what it sounds like because of the internet or i know what a kangaroo behavior is like yeah because it's such a fascinating creature but i would never see it unless i go to it Mm -hmm. which is not a practical thing yeah there's like when i used to work earlier at a picture book publisher so many we used to have these audio vi- audio visual books mm-hmm. and we had incorporated actual bird and tiger sounds into the book so for a lot of the children who were reading the book that was the first time that they were hearing what an actual tiger sounds like yeah. because they don't have access to the internet and they don't have access to forests yeah yeah so i found that very interesting mm. That, and that I wanted it's to a, stand up for technology. No, it, it is an it's an ableist idea to try and keep separate mm, yes. nature and technology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I identified with her obsession. She got sort of her obsessive streak or something I identified with. Yeah. Then she starts treating it like a game of trying to guess the sounds. And then um, she was like... And, then soon you'll know all of the sounds and then it won't be interesting anymore. And then mm-hmm. suddenly you'll hear this one sound and you'll be like, aha, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I was like, I don't have that excitement towards birds, but I do understand getting so deeply entrenched in something. Yes. Yeah. 
I feel a tremendous kinship with this author I've written mm. because she wanted to be everybody, yeah. which is exactly what I was like as a child. Mm. Where she says, "This is the kind of pronouncement I'll make." She's like, "This is exactly what I want to do with my life." And she says this after a figure skating competition. Suddenly, I will not want nothing more than to be a figure skater. Always wanting to do the very thing I cannot do, even though I've hated skating ever since I broke my tooth on the flooded frozen tennis court at the village park when I was ten. At least three times a day, I'm overcome by such desires. I used to be exactly the same. Is that the exact same section that I had oh, I highlighted? Know. Oh yeah, you can see it put a heart oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So I had uh, what I found interesting is how she starts uh, questioning what it means for her to be so excited by it if she's treating it like a game is she ignoring the beauty of the sounds mm. and uh, yeah that was a very interesting question to me mm. because i feel like i would also struggle with questions like that and i've always wondered like is is an is it better to be an expert or an enthusiast mm. or is one better than the other right or is one more valuable than the other for instance i know people who say they love coffee hmm. and they will only have the best coffee and they will have a very refined taste of coffee and i love coffee mm-hmm. and i appreciate good coffee but i will have horrible coffee over no coffee hmm. and i've always like that's a that's a small example yeah. to sort of i've always wondered what is the difference between those hmm. connections and yeah I know that one feels more superior than the other but mm-hmm. why is that? Yeah. What makes that more valid than just yeah, being enthusiastic about it? Especially the question of you said which is more valuable. Hmm. And it it requires having a definition of value and who's determining that. Yeah. Yeah, but you think like so much of this book is about the fact that she used to be a park ranger. She used to, like, hike mountains and live in the mountains on her own. Right. And she can't do that anymore. And now that she doesn't have that access, she every chapter almost, hmm. she turns something into a game. She plays okay. all of these games. And this is the point, this is close to the end of the book, where she is, yeah, reckoning with, hmm. is it okay that these are games and... I just think and like what was your thought about it? Because I landed on that there isn't a right or wrong way to no, enjoy I don't think nature. So. And as long as like at one point she says life's meaning comes from the fierceness of this attention. And yeah. it's just like she's paying attention. Paying, paying attention. Whether and it's for a game or whether it's to appreciate the beauty is to a certain extent irrelevant according to me i agree and also appreciating the beauty of something isn't enough appreciating something for its beauty doesn't keep it around sure right like not to say that she would do anything about it but perhaps because of this game if one of those bird songs disappeared suddenly Mm. or she was hearing less of one bird she would understand this bird something's Mm. happening this type of bird something's Mm. happening to it like at this point, she wrote this, I think, in 2004 or six. So climate change was well hmm. underway at that point. If, if what we're talking about is what is more valuable because of the fact that we're facing climate change, catastrophes, use or value means what's going to hmm. protect it best. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that there's only one answer, yeah. but just appreciating something isn't enough, I don't think. Yeah. 
And just playing a game isn't enough. That's true. But she has such little access hmm. that when you read through the whole book and she's still grappling with, is this okay? You just think like, <sighs> yeah. I want for you to be able to enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, oh yeah, I have a question for you. How would you transcribe Bodhisattva? Oh my gosh, just with question marks. <laughs> I don't have... No, suppose you had to make note of the sort of song you're hearing about. You wouldn't draw it, I'm guessing, because those drawings were pretty un- Yeah, I would probably me. have to use words. Hmm. And they would. I would probably have to, like... There are ways that, it already exists, ways that people describe birds based on the noise that they make. Like, they turned it into a phrase. Like, sure. Um, I can't remember. I had a friend who, Did he do it? Did he do it? Did he do it? Yeah. yeah. And I would have to, like, put certain words, like, a line up higher or yeah. lower than others. That's probably the only way that I could mm-hmm. do it. But I, I, I'm not, I don't have that kind of brain. <laughs> the visual one. Yeah. yeah. I, even, I, I also wouldn't be able to. Do you have an answer? Oh, no. Uh, what would I do? Yeah, I would also use words. We are so wordy. Yeah. And you're right. I would use like a bigger or a smaller type to show the volume or the pitch or something. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So I would clear out with how the text is arranged on the page. But exactly. I would try to transcribe it into words. Yeah. yeah. Which is tricky because then you're really, you're really, um, did he do it? Hmm. That's like really, uh, what's that called? really putting a certain type of message into the bird's mouth. <laughs> That's true. Okay, my what I've learned is also from this. Oh! So can I just... Wait, what you've... Oh, your discovery? My discovery. Yeah, please. Uh, there are some birds that I thought all of the bird songs are learned. Like, except for what they're born. Like, I know that birds have accents and, oh. and things like that. But there are some bird songs that are genetically hardwired and not learned, mm. which was very interesting. So no matter where they are, they'll sound exactly the same. Oh, wow. Because they're, they're, they're not affected by the environment. Now I don't know which bird that was. Sorry. Oh, the Pacific Slope Flycatcher. Wow. Is what she's talking about, but I'm sure there's some other birds also. That's crazy. Yeah. What's your discovery? My discovery is that there's a type of beetle called a scavenger beetle okay. that walks upside down beneath the water's surface. Whoa! Yeah, so you can watch videos of these bugs, these beetles, they look like beetles, scuttling upside down. Okay, so apparently they researchers don't fully understand everything about this yet. I was reading this on the Smithsonian website. Apparently, they trap air bubbles with their leg hairs, tiny little air bubbles that keep them oxygenated, but that also keeps them afloat and pinned to the water surface tension. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I wanted to tell you this earlier when we were watching Uh. the swans. I wanted to tell you about the the scavenger beetles, but yeah, they just, all of a sudden, one day, these researchers were like, what are those beetles doing? (laughs) I think that's so cool. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. Why don't we get into our main discussion? Oh, yeah. Which is, um, I wanted to know which texts have helped you with your dissertation writing, whether that's their writing style, the the ideas that they've shared. I have quotes to read from books. Yeah, I do too. Oh, excellent. I really, I love 
reading passages from books. You know this about me. I don't think that we do it enough. So, okay, but first I have to preface it Please. by saying, uh, because of the time that I am in my yeah. dissertation, my answer is very, very different from what I would have said earlier. That's fine. Because now I've already done most of my writing. My research is done. Yeah. My um, writing style is more or less in place. Yeah. What I'm grappling with are things like the main themes that are emerging from my work and just the very emotional aspects of actually writing the dissertation as well as what I'm writing about. Yeah. So um, none of them are books really. Oh. One is a speech, Excellent. one is uh, an article and oh, actually two of them are speeches I guess. Okay, I'll start with Ursula Le Guin's speech at the National Book Awards in 2014. Yeah. Um, so I have been struggling a lot with, I'm talking about all these, these seemingly big ideas, not seemingly, they yeah. are big ideas about environmental justice and climate change and activism. I'm also talking about books. And at some particularly dark times, I struggle to understand the importance of books and I know that it is very important I know how important art is otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I do but at some times when you're reading about just the horrible horrible things that are happening in the world or how horribly society is constructed and then you're just writing this paper and then I feel like is this my contribution to the world that's that's so terrible Shouldn't I be able to do more to help and how? Yeah. Then I need someone to assure me that art is important. Yeah. So I'm reading an excerpt from Ursula Le Guin's speech where she says, Hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine real grounds for hope. We'll need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. Right now, we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art, developing written material to suit stale strategies in order to maximize corporate profit and advertising revenue is not the same thing as responsible book publishing or authorship. Mm. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So excellent. Yes. This yeah, I think I gives also me hope. That actually. Hmm. Yeah. Do you want to go back and forth? Yes. Okay. So we've closed mine now. Excellent. Okay. So I the first all three of mine are books. Okay. Um the opposite of me. Yeah, but that's great. <laughs> we need lots of lots of mediums. Um the first book that I'm going to read from is a, a book, an anthology called Shaping the Fractured Self, Poetry of Chronic Illness and Pain. And I read this before I started writing my dissertation. Okay. Um, I think that the structure of this book is brilliant because mm. they, it's an anthology of poetry, but every poet has contributed three poems and an essay. The essay comes first and it outlines well, really whatever they wanted to outline to contextualize their poetry, but for most of them, it's like, what is their diagnosis? This is what an anthology editor needs to have. Yes. This sort of vision. It is brilliant. I've never it's seen so anything like it. It's so important to have vision. It's amazing. So the first, I'm going to read from two 
uh, two essays okay. um, by different people. The first is just a paragraph by the editor, um, Heather Taylor Johnson, and her essay is called Bodies of I and the Uncertainty of Poetry. I was sick and I'm talking about two bodies when I say I. The corporal body is a body of mass, an ill-functioning body. The lived body is an, an experience-rich body, that which dreams, that which frets and cries. I bring these two bodies together when I speak about I. Such an obvious thing to me it seems inevitable, but my doctor didn't do that, leaning biasly toward the corporal. Corporal. Corporal? <laughs> That sounds like it's written for you. Yeah, truly. Because, I mean, as uh, actually the other two books I'm going to read from also sort of point to this, the biggest question that I've been having in writing this dissertation is where is the I? Hmm. What is the purpose of the I voice when you're trying to write something? And I'll get to this later. It's not for me. Hmm. So where is I? And so this was like the first thing that I read and I was like, keep this in mind and then I forgot about it and lost it and came back to it this week and was like oh yeah so the other thing that I want to read is from Sid Larwell called creeping up on the things that matter I began writing poetry over the last few years it has allowed me to give voice to things that could have life in no other form things that won't brook direct examination but which must be approached quietly almost secretively as if looking at them only vaguely from the corner of your eye at the limit of your field of vision. I've had to creep up on the things that matter. Whoa. Yeah, and I think nice. that has really... Both of these are, like, very sort of theoretical. Yeah. And I underlined both of these in my original reading, not understanding what they meant, which mm. I think is a, a big part of what this project has been, is, is like, guidance either that I've read or been given from other people and been like, but I don't know what to do with that. Mm. And but actually, you do actually. But now I do because yeah. I've had to sit with those questions. Like, what does it... So, mm. for example, it sounds great to tell someone when you're writing poetry, look at them out of your peripheral vision. Don't look at it straight on. Yeah. But then you're like, but actually in terms of word choice, what does that mean? And actually, like, that is really good advice. It's a really good metaphor. Yeah, but you're right. It's hard to, hard to keep that in mind while writing something. Yeah. But after the fact, when you look at your poetry, a lot of it is doing that. So you have yeah. absorbed the lessons. Exactly. Somewhere. And actually coming, like, finding that quote for this discussion, I was like, wow, I highlighted that. <laughs> months so, ago so on some level you must have i hope so because it. i've come around to it and that is advice i would give yeah. in the future yeah, yeah that's good advice. all right give me another okay my other is zadie smith on optimism and despair mm. she gave this as a speech and then it was published as an article and now it's part of her uh, her book okay. so there are two little bits from that but basically she's talking about how change is always like the possibility of change always exists mm. and optimism is not stupid mm. <laughs> which i need to hear very yeah. often okay things have changed but history is not erased by change and the examples of the past still hold out new possibilities for all of us opportunities to remake for a new generation the conditions from which we ourselves have benefited 
progress is never permanent will always be threatened must be redoubled restated and reimagined if it is to survive then later she says people who believe in fundamental and irreversible changes in human nature are themselves ahistorical and naive if novelists know anything it's that individual citizens are internally plural they have within them the full range of behavioral possibilities they are like complex musical scores from which certain melodies can be teased out and others ignored or suppressed depending at least in part on who is doing the conducting at this moment all over the world and most recently in america i don't know when she wrote this but america there's always stuff happening the conductors standing in front of this human orchestra have only the meanest and most banal melodies in mind here in germany you will remember these Mar- martial songs they are not a very distant memory but there is no place on earth where they have not been played at one time or another those of us who remember to a finer music must na- try now to play it and encourage others if we can to sing along mm. so she was talking about how weird it is to get an award while so many terrible things are happening in the yeah. world and change will keep happening for the good and the bad yeah Yeah. People kept asking her the question why her earlier books were so optimistic and her later books were so full of despair. I feel like there's, it's obvious. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good speech. It's very important to hold on to. Yeah. So basically all of mine are things that I have to remember to hold on to because right now it just feels like I'm Would, in that place where I'm like, what's the point of anything? What am I doing? Hmm. Yeah. Which is, it exactly proves the point of why you have to write because you're looking to other writers yeah, yeah, yeah. to remind you why and that, that's the thing that you're yeah. trying to figure yeah. out why. So that's good. Hmm. But... What's your second? I do understand. Okay, my second is... I have two quotes again. All of mine are two quotes. Oh. From... Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, from a book, or an essay, I guess, but a book called The Hatred of Poetry by Ben Lerner. Which, um, I, the second quote, I, I know you have like 20 pages left That's of okay, this. So I, I think it's past the 20 yeah. page mark. Okay, but the first, the font is big. So even though it's two pages, <laughs> it's a big font. So you're a great reader oh, out loud. Oh, thank you. I'm not. Yes, you are. I stumble a lot. I have no practice at it. Okay. So previously, he's basically analyzing this writer... Uh, Grossman, I think is his name. Okay. Who suggests the 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 notion of a virtual poem. Oh, yeah. Basically, lowercase p poem versus capital mm-hmm. P poem. But anyways, he says, Here I am bypassing the beautiful intricacies of Grossman's account to extract from his underread and almost freakishly brilliant essays the idea that actual poems are structurally foredoomed by a bitter logic that cannot be overcome by any level of virtuosity. Capital P, poetry, isn't hard, it's impossible. Maybe this helps us understand more. Our contempt for any particular poem must be perfect, be total, because only a ruthless reading that allows us to measure the gap between the actual and the virtual will enable us to experience, if not a genuine poem, no such thing, a place for, a place for the genuine, whatever that might mean. Grossman speaks to me, Because like so many poets, I live in the space between what I am moved to do and what I can do, and confront in that disconnect not only my individual limitations, although I feel those too, but also the structure of the art as I conceive it, and I re-encounter that implicit structure again and again, 
in the claims of both those who purport to denounce poetry as those who would rush to its defense. The bitterness of poet poetic logic is particularly astringent because we were taught in an early age that we are all poets simply by the virtue of being human. Our ability to write poems is therefore in some sense the measure of our humanity. At least that's what we were taught in Topeka. We all have feelings inside us. Where are they located exactly? Poetry is the purest expression, the way an orange expresses juice, of this inner domain. Since language is the, is the stuff of the social and poetry the expression in language of our irreducible individuality, our personhood is tied up with our po poethood. And to me, reading this was such a relief. Hmm, yeah. Because I know that every writer feels this way, that what yes. they're trying to write, what they set out to write is not what they write. Yeah. And I don't write a lot of prose. Hmm. And through this whole project, every time I have an idea of what I want to write, I always am like, there's, there's the feeling of the poem. Yeah. And no matter what words I put down, it does not generate that feeling yeah. reading it back. Yeah. And that's a lot of what this essay is about is like capital there P. There is no. Yeah, there is no. It's, it's a myth, but because of that you keep invisible, trying. perfect version of it. Yeah you'll always be disappointed, but you'll always keep trying. Yeah. And that's the only space in which the beautiful poetry can exist. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, quite a, it's quite an interesting way to look at just creation of art because mm. if I'm ever satisfied with what I've written, then I, I won't try to better myself. Yeah. And I yeah. do think that overall, I don't mean that every newest thing is my best thing, but... I would like to believe that the newest thing I'm writing is always totally. the best version of yeah. my writing abilities. So, yeah, yeah, in that case, dissatisfaction is good. It but is. But it's so frustrating. But it's also the thing that, like, the thing that I set out to write, If even if I get that onto the page, if somehow, by a miracle, the feeling I'm trying to capture, I write, which has never happened, the person reading it... Hmm isn't going to feel that. That's not yeah. the purpose of it. Yeah. But I agree. A year mm. ago, I felt way more confident in my writing skills hmm. than I feel... Well, not my writing skills. About a single poem, I probably right. felt more contented than I do now, but any poem. Hmm. But my writing is way, I think, objectively better. better. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So that was comforting. Also, Ben Lerner is like a very famous poet oh so, is he yeah i only have one book of his on my list which i haven't <laughs> read yet but i don't think that's poetry does he also no that he writes novels as uh, well yeah but poetry. that'll come up later we'll get to that oh, okay yeah but i have another quote from this book actually which is different okay i remember speaking a word whose meaning i didn't know but about which i had some inkling some intuition then inserting that word into a sentence testing how it seemed to fit or chafe against the context and the syntax rolling the word around, as it were, on my tongue. I remember my feeling that I possessed only part of the meaning of the word, like one of those fragmented friendship necklaces, and that I had to find the other half in the social world of speech. I remember walking around as a child, repeating a word I'd overheard, applying it wildly, and watching how, miraculously, I was rarely exactly wrong. Mm -hmm. 
If you are five and you point to a sycamore or an idle backhoe or a neighbor stooped over his garden or to the images of these things on a television set and utter vanish or utter varnish, you will never be only incorrect. Mm. If your parent or guardian is curious, she can find a meaning that makes you almost eerily prescient. The neighbor is dying, losing weight, or the backhoe has helped a structure disappear or is glazed with rainwater, or the sheen of spectacle lends to whatever appears on screen a strange finish. To derive your understanding of a word by watching others adjust to your use of it. Do you remember the feeling that sense was provisional and that two people could build around an utterance a world in which any use signified? I think that's poetry. And when I felt I finally mastered a word when I could slide it into a sentence with a satisfying click, that wasn't poetry anymore. That was something else. Something functional within a world, not the liquefaction of its limits. Oh, that's so good. So good. I mean, just the, the writing yeah. is brilliant. The way this is like a crazy concept and he writes about it quite simply, even though I have a little bit of trouble reading it. It, it makes me feel like there are people who love this, the, the mystery solving as much as I do. Hmm. It also makes me as a leader of poetry be like, aha, hmm. maybe that's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> because I always struggle so much with poetry, which is what this whole essay is about. Yeah. But knowing that there's this element of rulelessness yeah. to language when poetry is done right is part of my problem yeah, yeah which i which, which i is get good to recognize it's I guess. it's the same idea as the peripheral thing right it's like if you see something out of your peripheral vision you're trying to fill in what's there like i can't see clear, if someone's standing over there i can probably sense that there's someone there and they're doing something but i don't for example know what they're wearing i have to guess and this is the same thing that it's trusting uh. that someone wants to guess what that person is wearing based on what you're telling them is in your peripheral vision. Mm. That's a very complicated metaphor. I'm not sure it really works, but it's, it, it is that peripheral, like inexact mm. thing, Yeah, which is fun and, and does make it, it also gives me a little bit of relief that you don't have to tell the reader what's going on. Yeah. And I, yeah. I do prefer poetry that is less of a complete mystery when I don't know the setting or like any of the details of what's going on that I know like sort of the starting place or something. Yeah, I just felt like, ah. Yeah. That's so, nice. Yeah, it is nice. All right. Oh, it yeah, it's me. my turn. Your turn. So this is from this. I, I remember reading this essay. It's a Rebecca Solnit article mm. i remember reading it as part of a collection i love her writing so much she's and come she up says in everything so i've been reading lately important things yeah. and so many things that resonate with me or things that i need to hear mm. that i'm always excited about anything she writes mm. this is something that i quoted in uh, i remember reading it and loving it way back when i read it and um then i quoted it in one of my uh, in my dissertation and at that time I got a chance to reread the whole article mm. and it's about how 
we look to a single person to solve our problems like a hero like uh-huh. the problem with it's the the name the title of the article is then the hero is the problem mm. and it's all about how as storytellers we always undervalue the power of a collective action mm. like the yeah. solution is always ascribed to the single hero who comes and solves all the problems yeah. and that's just the sort of stories we're used to consuming yeah. and how problematic that is because that's not how solutions happen yeah. that's not how any of our current problems are going to get solved it's only through everybody working together that they'll get solved and that's why we need to hear stories in which the hero is a community working together mhm um positive social change results mostly from connecting more deeply to the people around you than rising above them from coordinated rather than solo action among the virtues that matter are those traditionally considered feminine rather than masculine more m- nerd than jock listening respect patience negotiation strategic planning storytelling but we like our lone and exceptional heroes and the drama of violence and virtue of muscle or at least that's what we get over and over and in the course of getting them we don't get much of a picture of how change happens and what our role in it might be or how ordinary people matter unhappy the land that needs heroes is a line of bertold brecht's i've gone to dozens of times but now i'm more inclined to think pity the land that thinks it's it needs a hero or doesn't know it has lots and what they look like mm. yeah it's true i was going to ask before you started reading is is this idea like a product of hegemonic masculinity yeah and that's exactly and what it is saying. and also like colonial thinking because right. it finds a way to sort of dissolve the power of a community if you're always looking to one person because yeah. actually if you look at it the people who are marginalized are often greater in number yeah but because of our thinking of few stronger people are needed to solve problems rather than a lot of people together having strength yeah because of that we don't get anywhere mm. yeah yeah so it's so important to remember and this just applies to everything just in general it's so important to know that but it also like feeds into what i'm writing about so yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah i saw um this like uh i think it was a tweet but it was a a text post that said like how americans view superman and it's like him and he's mm-hmm. all muscular and whatever and then it says like how the rest of the world sees superman and he was like this <laughs> he had like a sweater wrapped around his shoulders <laughs> and boat shoes and was like really small but like puffing his chest <laughs> out i laughed i should have screenshotted it to send to you <laughs> anyways that's only sort of related Oh before you start reading yeah, let yeah. me just say that the book that you're about to introduce is one of my favorite books that I've read in the last year. Me too. It's amazing. I wanted to quote every single sentence every single and thing. if I had it in my house it would have definitely made my <laughs> list as well because it talks like very intelligently about art and about artists and about writing and how much of a struggle it is. Yeah. Um This book not only did, did the ideas change my dissertation, but this is 
the book that I would want to write. Mm -hmm. If I had ever written a book, this is the book I would want to write. You will write. When I write a book, then but I don't want to write this one. Then people will say that about That's right. Book. Thank you. <laughs> so this book is called Exposure by Olivia Sujic. I think it's how you say her name. S-U-D-J-I-C. And it's an essay on the anxiety... The academic. The anxiety academic is me. <laughs> <laughs> the anxiety epidemic autofiction and internet feminism that... Oh, this is a brilliant book. Okay, so I have, again, two passages. It's a mistake to confuse a literary project for a personally therapeutic one. Writing is not therapy for me. It creates as many problems as it relieves. The idea that subject matter which belongs to you, subjectively or physically, is easy to elevate to the status of art is culturally ingrained and yet reductive. So is judging art on the difficulty of construction. The real can be repurposed and achieved through estrangement, as in Duchamp's ready-mades or a Cornell box, a less circumscribed meaning than its previous role or individual owner allowed. What should be easier in writing what you know is trusting your own interpretation, though I'm not sure this is always true. It's hard to estrange the familiar, though anxiety certainly helps. I didn't recognize my own face, so alien were the voices inside my head. By starting from small details, details that overlap with one's own life ideas, a whole world can be examined without presuming to have cracked universal mysteries. And yet it's maddening how it's both presumptuous for a woman to write beyond her limits, invariably those of her own experience, and equally presumptuous to write about or from that experience. Mm. There's like so much in just that little passage that's sort of... Um, uh, encapsulates so much of what she's been saying but this idea that the writing process doesn't have to be therapeutic was also a relief to me because what I'm writing about is so personal I mean it's a it, it, it is at least inspired by my own chronic pain but I haven't found it at this point I'm sure after the fact I will but at this point I don't find it therapeutic I'm mm -hmm. not like relieved to have written it it's very yeah. difficult to write and I think this idea of writing being therapeutic sort of diminishes how difficult it is it's so difficult I hate writing it's, so much it's so so tough also I mean she talks a lot about anxiety but she she mentions here how not as a benefit but a side effect of anxiety is that you I do see myself sort of from outside of myself mm -hmm. at times not and and unfortunately it's not in like a kind or helpful way but i do think that's interesting and also this idea that she talks about it a, a lot elsewhere but yeah this that this idea that women can only write from their own experience and actually any marginalized group ben lerner also gets into that in the hatred of poetry that that white cis all of the other words men can write the universal hmm. and anyone from any marginalized group can only write from from their own yeah. group and if they can write anything that transcends that group it's like a miracle hmm. is not is just not true and she also says she does say at some point i don't think this is in my next quote it's actually, well, 
it, we can look at it as a benefit that women, you know, to rely on a, a binary and stereotypes and stuff. In, in writing, we, we know a lot of the ideas and the points of view that men have, but we don't yet know all of the points of view that women have. And that's true for, you know, the standard, quote unquote, mm. versus any marginalized group. It's exactly what you're saying. There's so much more room for knowing things mm. and understanding people. Okay, so my next quote says, Would I blink if I saw a woman reading Tao Lin or Ben Lerner? <laughs> no. Would I double take if I saw a guy reading Roxane Gay? I mean, I'd be mesmerized. <laughs> That's not how it should be. Men have much to learn from female subjectivity. It can surely only help them in the modern age in which they perceive themselves as under threat. As Zhang said of Sexton, the poems will be understood in time as not women's poetry or confessional poetry, but as myths that expand the human con consciousness. Like all such myths, they are a bit frightening. Some people would rather pretend that they do not exist or do not exist in the temple of art. Sexton's re readership understands that as a person she was troubled and abusive and that though she began writing poetry on the recommendation of her therapist, she thought, saw the exposure of her personal life as a formal technique. Quote, I use the personal when I am applying a mask to my face, Sexton wrote, like a rubber mask that the robber wears. Hmm. And this was, this, this bit is important to me because she talks a lot about this idea of the I voice and female subjectivity hmm. and like I said earlier, I struggled so much with that in writing this collection, as hmm. you know, that I completely scrapped it at some point and sort of had to come back to like, no, I, and it was really this book that was like, you have to be there yeah. in a world that's trying to erase because I did feel like it made it better art if I hmm. wasn't there. But again, it's like, whose standard is that? Yes. And that's not the standard that I want to care about. So, everyone read this essay. Yes. Exposure. <laughs> Exposure. Okay. Um, ba, 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 ba. What is your spotlight? My spotlight is a podcast called 28-ish Days Later. Oh. It's a BBC Radio 4 podcast about menstruation. Yeah. And it's great. They're just short episodes, like 15 minutes each, and they're 28 episodes. And each episode is going through the various days of the of the cycle. Mm -hmm. But it's a combination of talking about like personal experiences to uh, talking about like the scientific aspects of it. And there's so much that I don't know about how our hormones work yeah or the effects that they can have so much that is not known but so much of what is already known that i have not bothered to study because i'm always ever since i was a child i've always been resistant of of just being identified as a girl yeah. or a woman yeah i don't want that to be my identity and so if there's anything that is specifically about women and not about men that I always want to distance myself from it. Mm. But um, yeah, just knowing 
how your body works is so interesting and there are so many different experiences they acknowledge variations they talk about like different ages they talk about the social aspects the personal aspects the scientific aspects of it and it's it's been really interesting i'm on episode like 19 or something it sounds great it is great yeah Really can't good. wait to listen to it. That's my spotlight. Twenty-eight-ish days I later. I love it. What was your experience of reading exposure then? With, I mean, she really, she doesn't. She only refers to things in a binary gender scale. Yeah. Scale. So scale. I, I, no. So I always try to. I have a complicated relationship with with it, mm-hmm. but I definitely am. I'm very much a feminist and. Mm-hmm want to talk about the various inequalities but it stems from the fact of we are all equal we are all right. the same and that's what i see so which is why i never bothered to find out about how my uterus works and what specific female hormones do and what how they affect behavior because I don't want to acknowledge that uh, it, it irritates me when people say, "Oh, it's that time of the month," even right. though I have experienced yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But I get I it. get annoyed by it because I don't want that to define me. I don't want that to be part of who I am because then people can make generalized statements to right. undermine a whole gender. Yes, and that irritates me. Yeah, I I get so that. So I think it stems from that. Hmm. I. Otherwise, I have no problem. Exposure, I, I loved exposure. Yeah, 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 I didn't, yeah, yeah. And also acknowledging that, like, men have hormone cycles also. Yeah, are more uh, dictated by their hormones than we are at certain times of the month. Yeah. Yeah, uh, as at least are predictable patterns. Yeah. And there's are all over the place, so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I, I, What's I love it. What's your spotlight? My spotlight is a website called greennewdealuk.org. Okay. Green New Deal UK is a non-profit organization that was formed in 2019 by organizers who are committed to social, economic, and climate justice. Hmm. And then this past August, they launched Green New Deal Rising as like a, a movement specifically for young people. And you can go to the website. They have like job postings in like green jobs and events that you can attend and and things like that oh nice yeah what are you recommending to me next week i am recommending two poems by wislava simborska cool i think is how you say her name uh she's a polish poet and has won the nobel prize all right and the two poems are called the ball and possibilities oh and I love her poetry. I discovered it through the Marginalian website, uh-huh. which is to be called Brain Pickings. And, is, and I believe that website has the solutions to all our problems. <laughs> Somewhere, whenever I'm struggling with something, there's always something on there that helps me. Mm. Whether it's as, like, as an editor, and I was like wondering about so many of the texts that I read today also, must have been quoted there. I would have Aww. at some point seen that. Any, any, anyone who says anything sensible that applies to life finds its way onto that website somehow. She's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. I want to be on there. You, you really like that website. I recommend it to you. 
All right. But that's not my official no, recommendation. No, no. <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah. So I discovered her through that and her poetry is amazing. I've oh. then gone on to read other poems by her. Okay. And just wonderful. Can't wait. Yeah. Okay, my recommendation for you, um, I want to recommend a movie. Okay. But I'm going to give you three options. Okay. Because it depends on what you're feeling for the week. Oh, that's and nice. I'll save the others for later. So there's a documentary. Hmm. There's kind of like a fun biopic. Oh, <laughs> nice. We learned that Canadians tend to say biopic <laughs> instead of biopic. And one is like a crime thriller mystery, oh. not thriller mystery. So I want. I want to know what all of Yeah, I'll tell you what they are. Okay, so the documentary is called Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold. Well. That's been on my list for a billion years. Biopic, Being the Ricardos, Aww. which has also been on our list for a yeah. long time. You've watched it, though. No, I haven't watched oh, yeah. it. So Any watch of these I would like to watch with you. Oh, okay, great. If you want. Yes. Um, or the like crime one is called The Mauritanian, mm. which is... Um, like a a crime mystery starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Shailene Woodley, some Americans hunting down people who did things. But sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like a nine eleven conspiracy, but not conspiracy theory. Right. Yeah. So okay. any of those three, you can pick. Yes. Okay. Like we'll pick something. We'll watch a movie. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. We would like to thank Padre Gotuma as always for his poem, The Facts of Life, which provided inspiration for the title of our podcast. And makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs>